Like there has been a Knight Rider conspiracy in my life of late. Firstly, Trentus Magnus released an episode of Punch's Reality about an episode of the show, and then Aaron Henley and David Weeter both posted on Facebook that they were watching the pilot episode of the series. Then, of course, there's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, in which series star David Hasselhoff has a featured role. Suddenly, Kit, the car star of Knight Rider, started showing up in the most unusual of places. On the plane, on the way home from our holiday, I watched the documentary about Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Kit features in the film, as owned by Catherine Hickland, three times guest star on the series, and a former Mrs. David Hasselhoff. Now married to Carrie Fisher's brother, Todd, Miss Hickland uses the car for appearances at film and TV cons, as well as in her own stage show. After arriving home, I caught an episode of The Goldbergs, which heavily featured Kit. I have to confess, I was not aware of the Goldbergs at all, but the opener to this episode featured not only Kit, but the A-Team Van, Streethawk and Erwolf, so it's probably accurate to say that it grabbed my attention. Seeing Miss Hickland got me thinking about her role on the show. She played Stephanie Mason in three different episodes across the four-year run of the series. Stevie was an important character, adding some much-needed depth to the lead Michael Knight, played by the aforementioned David Hasselhoff. See, Knight Rider was created by Glenn Larson, a man I've covered on this show before. I don't mean to denigrate Mr. Larson, he did what he did and he did it very well, creating a number of great shows that provided many people with happy childhood memories. But it's fair to say that Mr. Larson wasn't interested in innovation or character, rather he was all about the high concept. And they didn't come much higher than Knight Rider. Having pitched and sold the high concept, Larson normally left the day-to-day running of the show to others, safe in the knowledge that a big fat royalty check was coming his way. However, unlike previous Larson concepts, which owed huge debts to then-popular movies, Knight Rider's genesis owed a great deal to an episode of a previous Larson production, Battlestar Galactica. An early episode of that series, entitled The Long Patrol, featured Lieutenant Starbuck, played by Dirk Benedict, being assigned to test a new recon starfighter, complete with an AI system on board. The system, called Cora, Computron Oral Response Activated System, features an on-screen display that bounces little red lights up and down as it speaks. It also features an antagonistic relationship with its pilots until both gain a grudging respect for each other. This episode, written by Donald P. Belisario, leans heavily into the idea of man and machine working together in perfect harmony, a key theme of Knight Rider. The main issue with the Galactica episode was, having created this super-advanced prototype, why was it never seen again? Larson answered this question with Knight Rider. As Kit has a scanner on the hood similar to a Cylon, it's logical to assume, therefore, that the technology that built Kit will ultimately create the Cylons and lead to the extinction of the human race. Before all that can happen, though, Knight Rider needs to get on the Ur, and this it did in the autumn of 1982. The pilot is slightly darker than the series that followed, which adhered more to Larson's template of family-friendly, like his other hit shows. The three episodes Hickland features in are White Bird from Season 1, Let It Be Me from Season 2, and The Scent of Roses from Season 4. All three episodes form a trilogy of sorts, and even this minimal attempt at continuity was appreciated by me as a young tyke. See, one of the things that bugged the crap out of me about Knight Rider, and why I always thought Erwolf was ultimately the superior show, was that Kit was forever having new gadgets installed that invariably saved the day in this episode, but were never referred to again. 
Still, I have warm and fuzzy memories of Knight Rider, and have remained a staunch and unwavering defender of David Hasselhoff for years. To whet our appetites, here is the teaser for White Bird, and, as per usual, the opening credit theme. Michael, I'm picking up two men on the ridge above you. One has a rifle. Stephanie, get inside! Go! Take cover! Our conspiracy case rests on your testimony. No matter what happens, you stay with Kit. But you just seem so familiar to me. Your voice, the way you move. You're gonna try and take her out of the picture before she gets to the grand jury. shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. Michael Knight, a young loner on a crusade to champion the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, in a world of criminals who operate above the law. White Bird has Stephanie, aka Stevie, an incredibly attractive blonde, caught carrying illegal money given to her by her boss. The FBI have had Stevie's boss under surveillance for a while and want Stevie to testify that her boss is a wrongun. Michael comes across her picture in the paper and takes it upon himself to involve the foundation he works for. In this episode, I'm going to do a script-to-screen comparison for most of these episodes, as most of them are available on the Knight Rider Online website. I find script-to-screen episodes quite fascinating just to see the minor differences as well as to see scenes that were cut from the final episode. It's interesting to note how many times the actors will alter the dialogue slightly so it seems more natural coming out of, the, of their voices, or maybe they just don't remember the exact lines and they paraphrase, I don't know. The script to this episode, Michael has to convince the Foundation to lend him Stevie's bail money and involve the Foundation at all. He doesn't just involve the Foundation in any willy-nilly case he happens to stumble upon. He has to get permission for the Foundation's involvement, which I thought was interesting. Devon Miles, played with true British stiff upper lip fortitude by Edward Mulher, isn't around, so Michael is forced to plead with Kit's scientific mechanic, Bonnie Barstow, played by Patricia McPherson, to help him. Michael insists Devon will know who Stevie is and will allow the transfer of money. It's a shame that all of these scenes involving Bonnie running the Foundation in Devon's absence were cut. For an 80s series, Knight Rider was remarkably kind to Bonnie. She wore coveralls most of the time and they were never unzipped all the way down to her belly button. She came across as an intelligent and capable woman, treated with respect by Michael and Devon, but there's no denying she was still eye candy. Nice eye candy, but still. Anyway, Michael explains who Stevie is to Bonnie. Back when he was Michael Long... Stevie and he were engaged to be married. 
Now, for those of you not up on the Knight Rider backstory, Michael Knight doesn't exist, as the opening credits told us every week. Originally, he was Michael Long, a police detective who was shot in the face in the line of duty. Wilton Knight, the creator of Kit, rebuilt Michael's face in the image of his own, which is a bit narcissistic, and gave Michael a new identity and job. Basically, drive around in a super cool car with tons of gadgets and get up the noses of people who commit white-collar crimes. Because this was a Larson show, no attempt was made to get under Michael's skin about his old life, what it was like to be considered dead, and how you couldn't have any interaction whatsoever with friends or family for your old life, and how this impacted on him on a psychological level. By episode 2 of the series, Michael was perfectly happy with all that had happened to him and settled into his new role. Which is why this episode sticks out. Michael has a new face, but nothing else has changed. He still has Michael Long's memories, his voice, his life experience, his body language and mannerisms. And Stevie notices that there is something familiar about him from the start. Rather subtly, she plays with a heart-shaped necklace every time she twigs Michael maybe more than he says. For the first time, Michael has a backstory and a character. And all credit must be given to Hasselhoff, who championed a script of this nature throughout the first season. The story was written by Virginia Aldridge, with significant contributions from Hickland herself, who, perhaps unsurprisingly, Hasselhoff was instrumental in casting. Anyway, irrespective of the edits, the scene between Bonnie and Michael is nicely played by McPherson and Hasselhoff. Either by accident or design, both actors played their parts as if their characters were attracted to each other, and this is no different. When Michael drives off, Bonnie's face is a mixture of hurt and acceptance. Michael then goes to pick Stevie up and they are chased by sketchy bad guys, which at 18 minutes leads to our first turbo boost of the episode. It's a pretty cool one. Kit leaps over a truck which is reversing with some wooden panel in the back. Needless to say, wooden panel goes splat and bad guys are left into splinters. This is textbook in its stunt work. Its takeoff and landing is absolutely perfect, neither tumbling nose first nor smashing down on the back axle. When they reach the cabin, Devon is waiting. In the script, the conversation is more balanced towards Devon. He's not exactly telling Michael off, but he is understandably cautious about it all. Mulher plays this a lot less harsh than it is in the script, but sadly a lot of it ends up on the cutting room floor, making a Devon Miles scene a Michael Knight scene, which seems to be the nature of the beast. The star has to be satiated. Bad guys then show up because they just happen to know where Michael and Stevie are hid. Something that is covered much better in the shooting script, where the Foundation's cabin is found due to Stevie's boss, who is a lawyer, looking up all the Foundation's tax holding and finding that they have a lease on this cabin in the middle of nowhere. In the episode of Screened, they just kind of show up there after an ADR-looped line from somebody saying, I know where they'll be. After arriving at the cabin, Stevie is shot. It's often said, with regards to special effects shots, that the simple ones are the best, and the stunt here is indicative of that. Kit drives to Michael and Stevie with no driver evident, and the driver door swings open to let Michael and the wounded Stevie in. Such a simple moment, exceptionally well executed, but it perfectly sells the idea that the car is sentient and is doing all this on its own. With Stevie in the hospital, Michael and Devon have a heart-to-heart -heart which reads differently once again in the episode than from the script. In the episode, Devon has been very supportive of Michael, so when Michael snaps Devon's head off in anger, it seems a tad unwarranted. In the script, and these scenes seem like they were all filmed judging by a script-to-screen comparison, Devon has been harder on Michael, so it seems more justified. Devon's confession about the Parisian girl he fell for is also longer in the script. 
Devon tells Michael that Stevie has been arrested on solicitation charges twice and has been defended by Stevie's boss, a man named Cole, a situation that Kit has learnt is untrue. Kit and Bonnie also find the link between Cole and a man named Anthony Solon, the guy who seems to have Cole in his back pocket. With only circumstantial evidence linking Solon, who is an undeniable wrongan, to Cole, and the trial only being two days away, Michael breaks into Cole's office, which surely makes any evidence inadmissible. Still, he doesn't get caught, and manages to get to the hospital as Stevie comes out of her coma. After telling Stevie that her record has been tainted, Devon makes the connection that Stevie's arresting officer was the same man on both occasions, and, coincidentally, he was one of the men that took a pot shot at Stevie earlier, which explains why Kit gave us a good look at both of them back at the 17-minute mark. Michael is ecstatic, but Devon points out that this shoots holes in Stevie's record, but it still doesn't connect Cole to Solon. Stevie uses herself as bait, and Michael gets the information he needs from the ex-cop. With the evidence, all that's left is the wrap-up. Cole and Solon are on board a flight, ready to take off if Stevie isn't killed. The turbo boost at 21 minutes isn't as impressive as the early one, as it's clearly a kit car. It's practically transparent and bits fall off it before it even starts the jump, let alone after it nosedives to the tarmac. Far more impressive is the finale, where Kit jumps through the back of a small plane, bringing the episode to an explosive climax. The tag scene, though, is slightly rushed. Stevie is informed that after testifying, she will be placed into the Witness Protection Program, and is unsure about how she'll deal with becoming someone else. The subtext is heavy, of course, but no less affecting. Michael notices Stevie isn't wearing her necklace, and she says she gave it back. She leaves, and after a misjudged comedy beat with Devon, Michael returns to Kit to see the necklace left on the hood of his car. This is actually a really solid episode. As I mentioned, it does a good job of giving Michael some backstory and a life before the accident, and the performances by Hasselhoff and Hickland are good, if a little soapy. It's a more complicated plot than Knight Rider normally bothered with as well, and I liked immensely that the necklace was never spelt out to the audience from the very beginning, the implication being that it was a gift from Michael to Stevie, and her leaving it with him at the end of the episode is downbeat and quite melancholy for this show. Of course, it's an 80s show, so there are some cool bloopers. Ignoring the mismatch of stock footage, when Kit leaves the semi near the beginning of the episode, he doesn't have his sunroof on, presumably for better camera angles, but when he pulls out of the back and skids off down the road, the roof is present. Likewise, when Kit zooms off to rescue Stevie from the shooting, a hand is visible on the steering wheel. Said steering wheel is seen to be round in one scene, rather than the gullwing wheel that is seen in the rest of the episode. These do not in any way hinder the show, and the script holds up very well, with little in the way of bad writing. Comparing the script to screen, thanks to KnightRiderArchives.com, most of the changes are simply reordering of scenes to make the app breaks more tense, and the removal of the Bonnie and Devon scenes, which I mentioned earlier. One funny moment that didn't make the cut was Bonnie, resplendent in blonde wig, offering to take Stevie's place in the climax, and Stevie refusing because she looked like Bonnie in a blonde wig, rather than looking like Stevie. Stevie would return in the penultimate episode of the second season, Let It Be Me, written by Robert Foster and Robert Gilmer from a story by William Elliot. Here's the teaser. Someone killed him, Michael. Murdered him. Step on it! Michael, my senses indicate that smoking car may explode. I'm going undercover with class action. Michael! Kit, I lost the brakes! Hold on, Michael. 
One false move, and you're both dead. The plot to this episode sees Stevie, now working under the name Stephanie Merch, being the lead singer of Class Action, a pop group that had just scored a top 12 hit. Stevie apparently didn't understand what witness protection entailed. Anyway, the guitarist and Stevie's boyfriend Greg is found dead before the credits finish rolling. For some reason, this death attracts Devon's eye, and he sends Michael, presumably not knowing that this is Stevie Mason, otherwise this is a really shitty thing to do. Stevie and Michael don't pick up where they left off, as she's moved on, despite still having some feelings for him. Stevie says that she drifted back to LA after the trial and fell back into her old life, but kept the new name. She hooked up with an old high school friend and they started this band that has suddenly skyrocketed in popularity. So, basically Stevie testified, the trial found everyone guilty and she got back in touch with an old friend, then she made it as a rock star with a picture on the cover of magazines. Stevie clearly didn't understand what witness protection entailed. There's an extra line in the script about police giving her the all-clear to move on with her life, which doesn't make this muddled mess any better. What's also muddled is wondering if Michael knew about this. When Devon mentions Stevie's band, Class Action, the wittiest thing about this episode is the name of the band, Michael has heard of them, but it's not made clear if he knew Stevie was the lead singer. He shows no sign of recognition when Kit asks who Class Action are, and he seems surprised when he sees her. But then he asks her all about the band as if he knows about their meteoric rise to fame. This is further complicated by the news that Stevie called the Foundation, so Devon must have known that this was Stevie when he sent Michael here, so he was just being a twat. Stevie is insistent that Greg is innocent of the overdose everyone is saying he died of, and thus he must have been murdered. She asks Michael for help, which of course he offers, especially as it is revealed that Michael will be going undercover as their new singer. Devon has the best line of the show here that sums up this whole sorry mess. That's preposterous. Not quite as preposterous as what happens next. Michael gets April to cobble together footage of him on tour in Australia to sell as his cover, and then he tells April and Devon that he had a demo tape with a record company before he went to the police academy. That's preposterous. Now I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Who the hell is April? You're thinking. April is played by Rebecca Holden, who replaced Bonnie for season two for reasons I've never been able to discern. No offence to Miss Holden, but Bonnie managed to convince me that she was a capable scientist and mechanic, as well as being beautiful. Holden has the beautiful part down, but she barely convinces me that she can keep her head upright underneath that heavy mound of gorgeous red hair, let alone that she could rebuild Kit's molecular bonded shell. Oh, that wasn't what you were thinking. Alright, well, what were you thinking? That this is the David Hasselhoff singing hour? Well, in that case, you'd be right. We're then treated to a montage of Stevie and Michael rehearsing, sitting at a piano, crossing out lines, that kind of thing, before we get a duet of them singing a song called Our First Night Together. That's preposterous. Yes, Devon. Yes, it is. As they leave, a stagehand named Jimmy gives Stevie a bag with Greg's thing, including a videotape. Okay, we're going to stop here and reflect. If you've watched any amount of 80s TV, you're probably ahead of this plot already. There's a clue on the videotape and the band's manager is involved. All that's left is to learn why Greg was killed. However, we're only at the 14 minute mark. So, the tape has to be stolen and it's time for a car chase. 
Kit and Michael chase the thief, and it's great fun watching all the pedestrians suddenly realise what they are seeing as they just stop what they're doing and stir. Of course, Kit and Michael are forced to abandon the case when the bad guy hits a car at an intersection that, because this is a TV show, is about to burst into flames due to this minor hit to the back taillight. Michael rescues the driver, but the bad guy gets away. We're then treated to another montage, this time of the song Whitebird, which appeared in the last episode a lot. This is a nice callback, but it's about five minutes of screen time that has now been pop videos. Michael asks if anyone else has a copy of the tape, and Stevie says that whoever did the original dubbing, a woman named Barbara Bellingham, may have a copy. Kit and Michael head over there. Most interesting is that this scene has a moment where Michael sees a picture of Greg and his clothes in Stevie's closet, and he's visibly torn up about it. Hasselhoff is still soapy, but he does make you feel. Stevie tells him that all the time she was screwing Greg, she was thinking of Michael. Which I can't decide if that makes it better or not. Anyway, as Kit searches for the videotape, how? Who knows? We get another singing scene. I'm spurring you all this, that's how nice I am. Kit has located a tape in a safe. Again, how? Best not to think about it. Anyway, Michael goes after the tape when, shocker, Barbara and the manager are both in on whatever they are in on. Michael and Devon watch the tape, and there is a binary code on it that April has to crack, which gives us time to have another singing scene. Michael and Stevie are driving in a car for a video shoot, but fortunately, this singing is interrupted by an attempt on their lives with the old, oh no, the brakes have been cut gambit. Kit saves them, and then casually informs Michael that the code has been broken. The turbo boost here isn't particularly impressive. The stunt driver seems to overshoot the mark, and it's another flimsy Kit car. I can understand them not wanting to trash a Trans Am at every opportunity, but there doesn't seem to be any weight to the Kit cars. Michael drops Stevie off and returns to the Foundation to be told the code is a travel instruction. He couldn't have been told that over the phone and stayed with Stevie, because if he had, Stevie wouldn't have stumbled upon a conversation between manager Paul and Barbara that incriminates them both, and then she wouldn't have been captured for her troubles. Bad scriptwriter. Bad. Barbara tells Stevie that she and Michael are to play tonight, and if she keeps her pretty blonde mouth shut, Michael and she will walk away. If not, blam. Barbara has a big screen set up behind them, and Kit sees the code, which he sends to April, who then calls the DEA, because apparently these are all flights containing drug mules. Paul and Barbara try to get away, presumably from the singing, and Michael and Kit stop them. The end. Well, apart from another singing scene, where Michael sings Let It Be Me to Stevie in an empty auditorium. There's then the teary farewell, which doesn't work this time, as she has no life to give up, so there's no reason that they can't be together. The snog between the two of them also makes it look like Stevie's a little bit heartless, having started another relationship so soon after Greg's death. <sighs> there's a huge disparity between the script for this episode and the last one. White Bird is a good episode with a plot that holds together and contains a number of moments for both of the leads to actually, you know, act. This episode has a number of loosely linked moments keeping together a Burbones plot that exists solely to appease the egos of the actors rather than service their acting talents. I'm not watching this to see the adventures of the singing man in his talking car. I just want the talking car. Now, incorporating songs into the narrative was an 80s staple. See, Moonlighting, Miami Vice, Rocky IV, etc. But the songs here are terribly sappy. 
At least when Rocky Four stops for a music video, it's a fun song. I get what the writers were going for. Michael and Stevie are communicating the things they can't say through the songs, but the arrangement and the tunes are so bland. Hasselhoff and Hickland can carry a tune, but they're very much in the vein of the old Saturday night variety shows or a Eurovision song contest. There's no bite to any of this. White Bird worked because there were real emotional stakes for Michael and Stevie. He was confronting the life he'd left behind, and she ended up having exactly the same dilemma as him by the end of the story. A dramatic development that fueled the story, as well as giving us a reason that these two couldn't be together. This? This is just silly. If Stevie got out of witness protection, a stupid idea in the first place, then why not contact Michael? Did Michael even know about any of this? Exactly why couldn't she work at the foundation? She was an experienced law clerk. Surely that would have been of use to them. There's little attempt to confront their feelings in this script, and when they do, it's soapy melodrama rather than giving us a real character to feel for. They even repeat the ending for White Bird, beat for beat, but this time it's groan-inducing instead of heartfelt. Bloopers are present once again, but I was so stupefied by the badness of this episode, I didn't process them. It could have been worse. Excised from this episode, but present in the script, were some truly juvenile and awful scenes featuring a stalker, also known as Class Action's biggest fan, trying to meet Stevie. Absolutely dreadful stuff. In this instance, the script wasn't an improvement. This was lousy all round. It may have worked better if it hadn't been Stevie. On a cosmetic level, the opening titles are completely different from season one, with loads of clips of Kit using Turbo Boost, which was clearly the big draw of the time. Stevie would sit season three out, and appear in the middle of season four in an episode called The Scent of Roses. There is no teaser to this episode, so I can't play it for you. What there is, is a significantly redesigned opening credit sequence. Patricia McPherson has returned to the show, and there is a new cast member added, Peter Paros as RC3, a street mechanic who helped out when Michael and Kit were in a pickle. Kit has also been drastically overhauled. His dashboard is very different, becoming more streamlined and more colour and more buttons. He can also now become a convertible. The biggest change is something called Super Pursuit Mode, where Kit develops fins and speeds along even faster than before. Personally, I think Super Pursuit Mode takes a car that looks sleek and menacing and makes it look like it's in the middle of a renovation and nobody's bothered to remove the scaffold. Plot-wise, a group of heavily armed men break into a government testing centre actually killing people on camera. Something rare for Knight Rider. They fiddle with some computer chips and then start to leave. Michael and Kit attempt to prevent them from leaving, but Michael is gunned down as he tears a fake beard from one of the men. This is actually a really dramatic opening. The fact that people are being killed, however bloodless that may be, because on TV bullets don't cause any blood loss at all, marks this out as a more serious episode from the get-go. The direction is pretty bad, though. Michael pulls the beard off one of the main bad guys, a man called Durant, but he does it as he falls out of frame, so we barely see it. I actually thought it was a goof that his beard disappeared until I rewound it and watched the scene again. The gunman is about to shoot Michael dead whilst he's down, but Kit drives in front of him to save his life. The actual scenes of Michael being rushed to hospital and it being touch and go are far too fast. This is an episode that would really have benefited from being a two-part story, with a whole episode before this one of the Foundation investigating Durant and Michael being a thorn in his side. 
This would explain why Durant is so dead set on seeing Michael finished off during this episode. They do explain that to an extent, but Durant is a major player, a top-of-the-line bad guy involved in espionage, and he's exactly the type of man Michael would have been sent after anyway. Taking an extra show to set all this up would have given the shooting higher stakes, as well as explaining how Durant knows who Michael is. Durant is very concerned that Michael saw his face, but as seen, he barely registered it as he fell, wounded to the floor. Granted, Durant doesn't know that. Michael pulls through rather quickly because he's the star, and Durant orders a hit on Michael. All of this has been in less than nine minutes of screen time. Again, a script-to-screen comparison reveals that these scenes were longer, and there was more angst from Bonnie and Devon, but these were cut, presumably for time. After Michael survives the second attempt on his life, thanks to Kit, he decides to leave the Foundation. Despite the rushed nature of these scenes, something that a two-part episode would have revolved, this is something that does ring true. It's not that Michael is suddenly tired of his dangerous life, it's that it's been a long process of wearing him down, and this was the final straw. 80s TV heroes went from adventure to adventure, encountering things that would leave most people reeling, suffering depression or worse, and to see that represented, however quickly, was a welcome change for sure like this. However, compare it to Magnum P.I., which did a similar story arc, where Thomas Magnum lost a loved one and spiralled into a deep depression. That show took three episodes to cover it, and the extra time allotted gave it more weight. It also showed us a hungover Thomas Magnum, a depressed Thomas Magnum, and a Thomas Magnum was all but given up, and that alone was shocking. We don't see enough of Michael being depressed or angry. It needs that extra emotional weight. Now, once again, I know what you're thinking. And again, you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, this is Knight Rider, a silly show about a talking car. Yes, this is true, but if the characters are real, I'll believe everything else. I'll believe a car can talk if Michael feels like a real person. And this is as close as the series ever came to achieving that goal. Devon decides Michael needs a reason to live, and he locates Stevie, who is now back using the name Mason, and is singing in an exclusive wine bar. Needless to say, she races to Michael, who has been conned into a farewell party by Devon and Bonnie. That emotional weight I mentioned earlier? It's actually pulled off here. Stevie's appearances across the run of the show add to this feeling, demonstrating that continuity of character can be a large help instead of a hindrance. No explanation is given in either the script or the screen as to when she went back to being Stevie Mason or what happened to class action, but that's probably for the best. After a beach montage of Stevie and Michael frolicking in some truly hideous 80s sweaters, Michael proposes. Durant, however, can't let it go and aims a small model plane packed with explosives at the beachfront property they are living in. Michael saves Stevie, thanks to Kit, but the house go boom. Well, thanks to the use of stock footage, a house goes boom, but not the one Michael and Stevie were in. Devon informs Michael of what we already know, that Durant is obsessed with killing Michael as he feels Michael can identify him. Nicely, they address what I mentioned earlier, in that Michael didn't see Durant's face. He can't ID him. He was too busy bleeding out all over the floor. Devon pleads Michael to help, and there's a lovely scene in the script that's cut here of Michael hanging up on Devon and angrily slamming Kit's door as he exits the car. It's Stevie who reasons with Michael. Deal with the Durant thing, and then they can both leave with a clear conscience. On screen, Michael just decides to help, because that's who he is, and he watches Kit's playback of his own shooting. And the show does something rare here. It plays fur with the audience. 
Kit's recording is all from one angle, with no zooms or cuts. They then completely drop the ball, by having Kit be able to extrapolate Durant's face from a reflection in a briefcase. We can't have everything, I suppose. With the printout in hand, Michael hands the case over to Devon, and he and Stevie leave to get married. The marriage is apparently a faithful recreation of Hasselhoff and Hickland's real-life marriage, and it goes without a hitch until Durant, in the incredibly ingenious disguise of a small moustache, bursts in and shoots, missing Michael and hitting Stevie. This was really quite lame, implying that the Foundation hasn't bothered with any security at all, given how they know Michael has a price on his head. Imagine my surprise that in the script this was actually a much better written moment. In the script, Durant is disguised as the minister, explaining how he got in, and the scene where Stevie is shot has far better stage direction. Michael is only warned as to what's happening by a scream, as somebody in the congregation spots Durant's gun under the pulpit. There's a lot more mayhem as Durant opens fire, and Michael and Stevie are split up, leaving Devon to protect her. It's Durant firing wildly that hits Stevie, which works a little better. The script also captures the horror of the moment and gives everybody something to do. On screen, everyone just kind of stands around. The only improvement is Stevie throws herself in front of Michael to prevent him being hurt, which is a nice inversion of what would normally happen, and gives Michael a real reason to hate this guy. Of course, neither the script nor the finished episode explains why Durant would do this himself, but after two failed attempts, maybe he didn't trust anyone else. Michael then goes on a vengeance fueled quest to find Durant. He goes to the guy they have imprisoned, the one who tried to kill him in the hospital, and basically drops him down a hole. Michael tells the guy in prison who Durant is, which is essentially signing his death warrant, especially after he shows him a picture of Durant. The prisoner, terrified, gives Michael what he needs, and Michael leaves, basically, to let the prisoner go back into prison, where it's heavily implied he's going to be killed for this. This is a harder-edged Michael Knight than we have ever seen before. He then tackles Durant's informers and has absolutely no problems with him being killed either. Hasselhoff actually gets to do some acting here. He's not great at tough, but he does use his height to good effect, looming over everyone to get what he wants. Durant agrees to the meet, but of course, it's a trap, and Kit and Michael must go head to flashing red scanner with a collection of missiles. This is a nice action scene, well done, but I'll be honest, I wanted more Vigilante Michael. He catches up with Durant and it all becomes a little bit TV. Again, the script is a lot more raw. Michael's pursuit of Durant is more feral, and upon catching him, there's no TV punching. He simply starts throttling the life out of him. Durant is passing out on the verge of death before Kit manages to get through to Michael and get him to stop. With Durant addressed, we're left with the tag scene. I heard something and for the life of me I can't seem to get it out of my mind You may break, you may shatter the vase But the scent of the roses will hang round it still The scent of the roses will linger forever
Where are we going, Michael? We're going home, kid. The family. We're going to the foundation. Hasselhoff had had his way, this would have been the final scene of the show. Apparently, he asked the network to leave this episode until the end, but they heard it mid-season, instead airing Voodoo Night as the final ever episode. Hasselhoff considers this to the reason Michael ultimately leaves the Foundation and uses it as the basis for his performance in the Knight Rider 2000 telly movie. The Scent of Roses would be a good way to end it. It wraps up the Stevie storyline as well as working both ways. After that ending, Michael can either rededicate himself to the Foundation or lose all interest and walk away. Its ambiguity is its strength. It's a good episode that completely ignores Let It Be Me and could carry on directly from White Bird, if necessary, bookending Season 1 and Season 4. The use of the same song, White Bird, by It's a Wonderful Day, adds a nice touch of continuity. Hickland and Hasselhoff would sadly divorce before the end of the 1980s, although she would later marry a man whose real name was Michael Knight, as well as playing the mother of Justin Bruner, who played Mike Knight in the 2008 sequel to the show. Hasselhoff is still playing Michael Knight in many ways, although this doesn't seem to bother him. Knight Rider is one of those shows that didn't really run for that long, but was a phenomenal success. It's still part of pop culture, and this may be both a blessing and a curse. There have been numerous attempts to bring the show back, but curiously never as a full reboot. The aforementioned telemovie, the short-lived syndication drama Team Knight Rider and the 2008 continuation were all sequels, and they all featured Hasselhoff or a mention of Michael Knight in one capacity or another. Currently rumours abound that Star Trek Beyond director Justin Lin is circling a movie version, but without Hasselhoff, William Daniels and that car, who can say if it will work? Maybe one man really can make a difference. episode out tonight with the regularly scheduled email section uh the first email tonight is from nathaniel wayne hello nathaniel untold tales of awesome well i'm glad you think that they're awesome i am enjoying them also hello there andy hello there nathaniel first off thanks for playing the punch like a girl promo in the most recent palace episode it's always appreciated plus you know i'm a total narcissist who loves the sound of his own voice ah oh, did i say that out loud oh i've not put a trailer in have i oh 
Oh, okay. I'll think about that later. The whole Untold Tales is... Um, oh, and you've thrown me off, though, but I realise it's because I'm doing this slightly different than what I normally do. I'm actually recording it into Audacity and editing it as I go along and dropping the clips in as I go, which isn't normally how I do it, because I'm trying to see if this is a quicker way of doing it. And so far, I've been at this for, for just over two hours now, so it doesn't seem to be any any quicker, given that the episode is, what, 45 minutes in length in total? So um, maybe I'll go back to my old way of doing it. Anyway... All of that's irrelevant. Nathaniel's email continues. The whole untold tales of the sort of thing I'm always highly wary of. Fleshing out gaps in long-term, long-form storytelling, sorry, is much more likely to result in either continuity nightmares, making the overall universe feel smaller as characters are entangled even more tightly into each other's lives, and every minute is detailed, or quite often both. However, from the sound of this one, it nailed the execution to what I consider to be a wonky idea. Frankly, I'm kind of a sucker for good executions of bad ideas. See also the Lego movie, the original Pirates of the Caribbean, Red Dwarf, Back to Earth, or making Barbara Gordon Batgirl again in the New 52. I, of course, never read these at the time, but I'm greatly enjoying hearing about them now, especially hearing your thoughts on how this all hangs together. I suspect that a fair part of what makes this work is that Busick was allowed to create some new characters and made use of some long-forgotten ones, rather than making the typical mistake of only sticking the characters we know, which causes the whole makes-the-world-feel-small mess I mentioned before. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I've mentioned as we've gone through the Untold Tales stuff. The, the Tiny and the, the Jason and the Sally stuff was more interesting because we kind of ultimately know where Peter and Flash and Liz and all that lot end up. Um, and sometimes he dances around the, the raindrops very well and other times, as you'll probably see in the next episode, I don't think he's quite as successful at it. But well, I'll let you hear that when I, because the next one's halfway through written, which is going to be another Untold Tales. And um, I'll let you listen to that and see what you all think of it. In regards to your questioning on the inability of actual comic books to be more accessible to consumers in terms of buying them, I'm not sure the industry can undo the damage it did to itself in the 80s and 90s. And I'm not talking about the awful writing. I talk about that enough on 90s Comics Retrial on the Council of Deeks podcast, available on iTunes and Stitcher. Double plug, Natch. I'm talking about how, in an effort to better appeal to hardcore fans who were willing to spend more money, the industry pushed comics out of the spinner racks in drug or grocery stores that used to attract new readers, and instead put them into dedicated comic shops, which, as much as I may like them, are not new reader-friendly in either design or atmosphere. Because those spinner racks are exactly where issues of heroes whose movies are massive hits would be flying out the door. But reinstating that infrastructure may be impossible now that it's been so thoroughly dismantled and has been for about 20 years. It's a shame because without an easy way to get into the hands of new fans, most comics have either become test kitchens for movie and TV concepts or self-pleased circle jerks aimed at keeping the hardcore fans happy. But yeah, me and Michael talked about this all the time. On, uh, on Hey Kids Comics, that was the air freshener. Um, one of the things that we addressed was DC of publishing, as I record this, are republishing all the Rebirth number ones for a dollar to tie in with the release of the Justice League movie in um, November of 2017. And I can't help but think, well, yeah, that's a great idea, but are these going to be available anywhere but comic shops? In which case, what's the point? And two... What are people going to do when they realise that the next issue isn't a dollar, it's four dollars? Or in the case of DC, it's only three dollars, isn't it? Which isn't quite as bad. But, you know, that kind of thing may put them off more than it invites them. But I, I don't know. Marvel have suddenly re-entered the Digest arena with Digests that have been published, oddly enough, by Archie Comics. 
And the Spider-Man one is apparently out in the wild in Newsagents. And it's a mixture of, there's a Lee Ditko issue in there, and then there's a Lee, I think there's a Ross Andrew story in there, and then more recent stuff is in the more reader-friendly single-issue stories. Maybe that's the way forward. Bring back digests, get them back, you know, with TV Guide and all those tripe magazines that um, I used to see when we were in Florida. You've got a lot of awful magazines at your... Um, your checkout counters in um, in supermarkets. So putting some comic digest there may be good. It may elevate the the IQ level of the people who look at those magazines. Although I was fascinated with how interested you are are in Pippa Middleton, because frankly we don't give a shit. But we digress. Uh, thank you, Nathaniel. Uh, yeah, again, you know, it's ultimately up to the the companies to get them to where they can be bought. And I, I saw last week myself little mini comic con in my own town. Loads of kids, girls going, ooh, DC Comics, and pulling out issue after issue of Harley Quinn in the 50p bin. And that's that's what you want. You want little kids getting into this stuff, whether uh, the new Harley Quinn book by, um, who is, is that Nicholas Scott and um, Jamie Pamiati? Whether that's appropriate for, for young kids, I, I, that's open for debate, obviously. Uh, but thank you. It's always nice to hear from Nathaniel. Always nice to hear as well from Chris Franklin, who's also emailed in with, untold, now told! Hi, Andy. Hi, Christopher. You continue to do the Lord's work, TM Michael Bailey, with your untold Tales of Spider-Man coverage. I wish the Lord paid better, is all I can say. You've got to one of my favourite comics, Annual Number 96. I had a hoot reading this to young Andrew, not you, my son Andrew, when he was a wee lad and doing my best Paul Soules impersonation as both Peter and Spidey. He loved it, so very fond memories of that one. I'm not sure I ever bought the MJ always new bit, but I think it was just another example of the shaky foundation the relationship was built on in the past 30 or so years. It seems Destiny was forcing these two together when publishing history and everything else said no. Great coverage, and I look forward to more of anything you're up to giving us. You can read the phone book, as far as I'm concerned, and I'll listen. Well, thanks, Chris. I don't actually have a phone book. but uh, I do have my little notepad here of ideas for shows. I don't know if you'd want me to read that out. Chris does Supermates with his, his wife, Send It. That's a great show. Uh, but he's also co-host with Ryan Daly of Batman Nightcast, which is also an excellent Batman show. So you should go and check that out. Uh, our final email tonight came from Patrick Delmore. So it was nice to hear from him as well. Hello, Patrick. What about Sergeant Thompson? Patrick demands to know. Um, hi, Andy. I just finished listening to the third episode of your Untold Tales retrospective. There was a lot, though, to talk about, but first I want to hearken back to the second episode. You mentioned the Untold Tales special with Doctor Strange. I had a physical copy of it, a surprise whilst digging through a long box at my LCS. I kept it until I got my omnibus, but gave it away as a prize during an open mic I was hosting. It's just about as good as any other Spidey Doctor Strange team-up. <laughs> That is as diplomatic a review of that comic that I can imagine. So well done, Patrick. Ditko being the shirt creator, they team up a lot. You've read more Spider-Man than I have. Is there really a good pairing of the two? Ben Sinister. Ben Sinister is Amazing Spider-Man Annual God. Is it 13 or 14? That's really fun because it has um in it. And that's just brilliant. Doctor Doom's the bad guy. Um, and it's it's just a fan that's a fantastic Doctor Strange Spider-Man team up. That's really good. So check that out. We covered it on Hey Kids. If you want to go back and look through the archives on Hey Kids Comics, we did cover that issue because I absolutely adore it. On to part three. All my issues of Untold Tales fell apart. 
Oh, right, good, so it wasn't just me then. I just thought I read them too hard. Sorry to hear that they were printed to match the price. I was reading from the omnibus along with the show and Miss Seeing Art Adams credited as inker on the Hawkeye issue. Mine says Al Williamson inked that one. Only the cover was Art Adams, Patrick, not the issue. Um, apologies if I didn't make that clear enough. Also, it looked like the sock with the toe sticking out of the artist's loft in the headsman issue was removed for the collection. All right, that's unusual. Although there are several other things in the studio that look like Ditko sketches. Finally, what about Flash's dad, Sergeant Thompson, in the Doctor Octopus issue? When did he first appear? Does his first appearance in this comic work, in your opinion? At least one inquiring mind would like to know. Thanks for another great episode, Patrick. Well, you're very welcome, Patrick. Now, without consulting with the Google foo, I must confess, I have no idea where Sergeant Thompson first appeared. Um... As whether it worked in that issue, I didn't really pay him. No, never mind. Doesn't it turn out ultimately that the Flash was an abused child? And that's why he was the way he was, which doesn't come across in the early issues in any way. But, you know, whatever. It's the thing with retcons, isn't it? Uh, thank you very much to you lovely people for emailing in. I am also on Facebook, Andrew Leyland, and Twitter, although I think Twitter's largely useless. Um, but you can get in touch with me through via either of those. Hey kids, comics at virginmedia.com is the email address if you'd rather email in, because that's probably the best way of making sure you get listened to or read on the show. Uh, as usual, this is a Two True Freaks presentation, and if you wish to support the network, and why would you not? Go to the webpage, tutorfreaks.com, and uh, use the Amazon link that's on that page to buy your whatever it is you wish to buy from Amazon, and we get a kickback from that, and it keeps all these lovely shows coming your way. Uh, next time, I can actually say with some certainty, it will probably be another Untold Tales segment, because I'm halfway through writing it. So thank you for indulging me in my Night Rider moment, and uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.